Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I thought it'd be interesting to consider what investment returns I think are realistic to expect if you invest in residential real estate. And of course, to sort of frame these expectations, I think it's really useful to look back over history to see what does the evidence show us. And so I spent quite a bit of time over last week doing that. And what I did is I looked at the rolling 10-year investment property returns since 1982. So four decades of data there, really smoothing the return over a 10-year period. So that's sort of, again, what we're trying to do is set an expectation for what the next decade will deliver. There's always a lot of commentary with respect to property prices and movements and expectations in short term. So, you know, will property prices rise or fall over the next 12 months and so forth? Well, that might make for an interesting topic to read about or discuss and certainly the media like it. I don't think it's very useful for property investors because few property investors are going to say, well, I might go and buy a property tomorrow and then I might sell it in two years time. Normally, and I would certainly counsel people to take this uh, time horizon, but normally people are thinking, well, I'll hold the property for 10 plus years. And so therefore, I think it's worthwhile to, to look over those sort of longer time periods. And so what I did is I looked at the median house price on average for Mel- between Melbourne and Sydney. So just the two key kind of capital city markets. And also looked at the median rental yield for, for a house as well. And I reduced that rental yield by 30% to account for expenses associated with property. So I think 30% is the right number, certainly from my experience, uh, in terms of what net income you might receive from a particular investment. And remember, your return is going to be a combination of those two things. There's the capital growth and then the rental return after expenses, but of course, before interest, because how you fund your investment is up to you. That's what the asset class will deliver. And so there's, uh, I, I drew a chart, which of course you're going to find the link in the uh, show notes to that blog that includes the chart. But there's just a few interesting observations I would like to share with you from that analysis. And I should say, whilst we're only looking at Melbourne and Sydney here, because I didn't want to sort of make the data too confusing, I would imagine that the total return amounts won't be that much different to to other capital city markets. I mean, they'll be lower, but not uh, materially different necessarily. So uh, here's the observations. Uh, Over the past 40 years, the average decade-long return is 9.7% consisting of 7.3% in growth and 2.4% in net rental yield. So that kind of makes sense. We've always assumed that most of your return is going to be in capital and less in income if you invest in property. And I'll point out that this is median price data. And if you apply the principles that make a, you know, the characteristics that make a property investment grade, Uh, you should be able to achieve returns in excess of this. And and the returns you're most likely to exceed are the capital growth returns, not necessarily the income returns. Okay, so let's look at the volatility then. So the minimum decade return over the last 40 years was, uh, and this is a rolling decade return, was 4.7%. And that was between 1989 and 1999. That includes the early 90s recession that, uh, you know, the, the recession that we had to have apparently. And the maximum return was 13.6%. And 
and that was between 82 and 92. So there was a, in the 80s, property did incredibly well, despite um, capital gains tax being introduced uh, in the middle of that decade. Uh, two thirds of the time, uh, your average decade return will be between 7.7 and 11.7%. So there's not a lot of volatility, particularly if you hold property for you know, a decade or more, which again kind of makes sense because it smooths out returns. And that's not unique to property, of course. It's similar with the share market, although the, the share market does have much higher volatility uh, than property does. It's interesting to note that growth and income, so capital growth and income, tend to be negatively correlated. So that means that if, uh, if property investors experience a, a decade of lower than average growth, they tend to be compensated with a decade of higher than average yield, and the reverse is true as well. And that's important to that. That observation is important when we sort of frame our expectations for the next decade. It's interesting to note that the recent period, so between 2009 and 2021, so that period there, which is 12 years, resulted in below average growth or below average growth in income, so total return of less than 8% per annum, remembering the long-term return is 9.7, so that's 20% below that long-term average, and it's just because of the COVID boom, uh, both in spike in prices and then spike in, in rental yields more recently, have made up for a little bit of that lost ground. So again, putting it in perspective, when people talk about property prices during COVID and rental yields rising, uh, you put it in perspective, actually investors over the last 12 to 14 years have earned below average returns. And so that's important to note because mean reversion will kick in at some point. And remember, mean reversion means that returns always revert to their mean or their average, which means that if we have had a period of below average returns, which we have, then it's likely that in the future we'll have a period of above average returns. When that period of above average returns begins is unknown. But obviously, the, the longer the period of below average returns persists for, the more likely that you will enter soon a period of above average returns. Now, given uh, rental yields are a hot topic at the moment in terms of the rental crisis and uh, rental incomes rising and so forth, I thought it would also be interesting to have a look at rental growth over the past period, past number of decades. And again, I calculated the rolling 10-year growth in rental yields because rental yields can be a little vol volatile. Like they'll have maybe a couple of years of strong growth and then a couple of years of going sort of sideways. So it's kind of good to look over sort of a decade-long period. And again, uh, that chart is in the on the blog on the website. And the average growth in rental over a decade rolling period is 3.7%. So that means yields, rental yields are uh, in a normal environment are growing faster than inflation, but certainly not keeping up with the growth in property prices. And so therefore, over time, really rental yields are coming down as a percentage of the value of the property, which makes which makes sense because, you know, if a $2 million property today is going to rent for $800 a week, if that property is worth $4 million in 10 years, you know, you're not necessarily going to get $1,600 a week. As a percentage of the market value, your yield will compress over time, which again makes sense. Now, when you look at that decade, rolling decade growth rate in rental yields, 
it shows that the average uh, has been it's been below average for the decades ending 2017 through to uh, 2023 so really since 2007 rents haven't been rising or have been rising less than what they have done in previous decades and in fact before 2007 so uh, yes, rental yields are rising uh, strongly at the moment. Yes, it's a problem that needs to be solved because, you know, renters, from a financial perspective, tend to not be um, in a position where they can afford to continue to pay more. Uh, so you need to protect those vulnerable people. But from a investment perspective, uh, investors have been taking a bit of a haircut in terms of rental income, certainly for almost the last 20 years of, you know, the, the rental growth has been less than average. So we're really just, again, making up for lost time and markets will move in cycles, of course. So we'll have cycles of below average and above average. And certainly the decades between decades ending 2008 through to about 2017, we had above average growth in terms of rental income. So again, a bit of mean reversion here, but it's good to put a bit of long, longer term context around it. So let's talk a little bit more about the rental crisis then. I mean, it's clear that there's a shortage of private landlords in Australia. The national vacancy rate dropped below 1% last month, uh, which is a, a record low. And certainly in some states like uh, Adelaide and Perth, uh, the rental market is even tighter than that. They've got uh, vacancy rates below half a percent, uh, which essentially means that there's no vacancy really. And over the past year, in some states, uh, rents have risen by more than 10%. So we're certainly seeing a lot of rental growth. And I think it's very likely that it will continue until there's an increase in private landlords. So obviously, a lot of private landlords have exited the market over the last couple of years. They've sold out of their properties for a bunch of different reasons. Could be higher interest rates. They could have just wanted to take the opportunity to cash out while prices were sort of booming. And also uh, tighter uh, tenancy laws, I think, which dissuade investors from uh, you know renting out their properties, I think have also sort of played a role. And then you've had some land tax changes. So there's been a lot going on. It's difficult to put your finger on just one thing, why private landlords have been selling up their investment properties, but they certainly have. And whilst we can build more properties, we really need to have those existing dwellings converted back into rental properties um, because of those investors that left the market over the last period of time. But it's important to know that, you know, history tells us that if we're going to experience higher than average rental growth, we, that typically won't, at the same time, we can't expect higher than average capital growth. So it's likely then the next, at least the next period of time, the next few years, we're probably likely to get okay capital growth, but a, a lot better income growth over that period of time. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about um, what we can do or what the government can do to solve the rental crisis, because I think it's important to consider that when framing our expectations for future returns, because that will have an impact on what the future returns will look like. The first thing that must be changed is borrowing capacity needs to be loosened off. So banks must impose a 3% buffer on top of a prevailing interest rate to assess a person's borrowing capacity. That means that prospective loan commitments are calculated at 9.5% to 10% on a principal interest basis over a 25-year period, which means that the, the loan repayments under that assessment are massive. They're, they're huge. 
And to put it simply, I worked out that an investor must demonstrate that they've got an annual surplus cash flow of $67,000 after tax to be able to borrow a million dollars for investment purposes. That's almost really $100,000 pre-tax to borrow a million dollars. So there's not a lot of people out there that have that much surplus cash flow or can demonstrate they've got that much surplus cash flow. And as such, you've got a lot of willing and able property investors that are kind of locked out of the banking system, unable to borrow and therefore unable to invest in property. And when we look at this borrowing capacity assessment on a reality perspective, you know, if you if you look at, well, what does that actually mean? What If we're going to calculate um, repayments at 9.5% on a principal interest basis over 25 years, in a practical term on an interest-only basis, what does that mean? And essentially, it is the same as assuming that the cash rate is over 10%. Now, the cash rate's never going to get over 10%. So we really need to make these borrowing capacity assessment more realistic and logical. And, and I'm suggesting that the benchmark interest rate should be capped at, say, maybe 9% on an interest-only basis which means that, okay, we can assess someone's borrowing capacity, but let's not assume that repayments are going to exceed 9% on an interest-only basis, because if you do, what happens is you lock people out of the market. And actually, for wealth equality, it's not good, because people with uh, very, very strong incomes aren't impacted by borrowing capacity, things like this, uh, but people with weaker incomes are. And so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, of course, because of these sorts of policies. So that's the first thing that needs to change is borrowing capacity. It needs to be capped. And that's an easy fix and, and an easy change. Now, if loosening borrowing capacity doesn't uh, isn't enough to sort of solve the rental crisis and encourage private investors back into the market, and remember, things like tenancy laws and uh, land tax and so forth add a, a layer of cost and compliance and risk onto being a property investor. And so maybe what investors are doing are looking for better compensation for some of those things. And so I wrote an article for the Australian newspaper over the weekend. I put forth a few suggestions of what the government could do, what the federal government could do to kind of incentivize more private investors to come into the market. And what I was suggesting there is perhaps reduce the amount of capital gains tax that you might pay on your investment property uh, if you hold it for a long term. So if you're a long-term landlord, maybe you should get some concession from capital gains tax. And I had three different ideas. The first one was to increase the, the general 50% discount. So you're probably aware that if you hold any investment asset for more than 12 months and you sell that asset and you make a capital gain, that you can reduce that capital gain by 50% and therefore you only pay tax on 50%. Well, what I was suggesting is maybe if the landlord rented their property or was available for rent for 10 continuous years, that they could have an additional maybe 10 or 15% discount. So they'd discount the gain by 60 or 65% to sort of ease that capital uh, gains tax burden. Uh, the next idea was in at the moment, if you sp sell a small business, uh, you can use, uh, you might be able to use small business tax concessions which essentially uh, allows you to roll the capital gain into your superannuation and avoid paying any capital gains tax on the sale of your business. And they're very generous provisions, and they really were drafted to suit people that, you know, that, that invested in their business and that was their nest egg, that was their super, if you like. And so by taxing that less, allowed them to fund their own retirement and therefore they were less of a burden on the welfare system. 
Well, you could have similar concessions for property investors and to say, for example, if you go and sell your investment property, instead of paying capital gains tax, if you roll those monies into super, uh, you won't pay any capital gains tax. So similar to the incentives are already offered to small business owners, uh, maybe you could extend them to property investors. And lastly, another change they could make is allow expats that are living overseas, so Australian citizens that are working overseas, currently don't get access to the 50% capital gains tax discount. So therefore, if you've got a Australian working overseas, they're disincentivized to invest in Australian property whilst they're overseas because they'll pay a lot more tax on the capital gain for that period for that period that they were a non-tax resident. So to reinstate that 50% discount, particularly for Australian citizens or permanent residents, I think makes sense and encourages then people that are working overseas to bring their money back home, invest it in the Australian property market. And of course, if they do that, it's not going to be for an owner-occupied purpose. It will then increase the pool of rental assets. So there's some of the changes that you know the government could look at if borrowing capacity, if loosing borrowing capacity doesn't really work. And again, the way I view these is it's sort of additional compensation for the other taxes and obligations that property investors have had to deal with over the last few years, um, particularly because of state legislation and something that the federal government can do. But they should only ever do it as a last resort. So they should really try to do everything else first, because I really don't like it when governments kind of interfere in a free market. Uh, and also don't like it when a different type of asset attracts a different type of tax treatment. So I'd rather property and shares and commercial property and everything else be treated the same, as opposed to sort of um, having some unique incentive just for residential property. So I'd like to avoid that if possible. But again, uh, the rental crisis needs to be solved. So this could be the lesser of the two evils in terms of uh, providing those incentives that I just sort of suggested. Okay, so to wrap it all up, what do I expect in terms of future returns over the next decade for residential property investors? Well, I think over the next couple of years, they can expect to enjoy strong growth in rental incomes. And together, that they, they, they still achieve some okay capital growth, but capital growth might be sort of in the 4 to 6% kind of range. I don't think it's going to run away on us. However, once this rental crisis thing is solved, and remember, it's got to be a a combination of increase in, in building property numbers, like some new new dwellings, but new dwellings can only be built in areas where there's land supply, of course, so that's not going to solve the full rental crisis. To do that, you've got to attract more private landlords. And so if you attract more private landlords into the property market, that then stimulates demand for property and that will then translate to, to price growth. So I think over the next couple of years, will probably be a lot of income, okay capital growth, and then over the uh, after that's done and and private landlords are returning, I think then we'll see stagnant income and a lot more capital growth. And I think over the next ten years, the chances are of achieving a total return of more than nine point seven percent, which is the long term average, is the probability I think is high. Um, how much more? Not really sure. But you don't really need a huge return to have a massive impact on your wealth. You know, a 7.2% return in, in totality after tax will we'll see your assets double in value every 10 years. So if we're getting 10%, uh, it's going to double in a period of time shorter than 10 years. Uh, again, they're average returns.
So I encourage you to check out some of those charts that I've published on the, the website. And I, a little bit of a longer one this week, so apologies for that. But I hope it's been uh, interesting and a bit of food for thought. And of course, I look forward to looking back in 10 years' time to seeing, you know, how, how correct was I in terms of predicting those returns. Okay, thanks very much. Until next week, bye for now.